Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 167. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, our King. Lord, we are thankful once again that we can spend time together, and most importantly, we can spend time with you. We ask that you will be with us tonight during our study. We ask that you will open our hearts and our minds to comprehend the words. Give us an enlarged capacity to um, remember, to engage the text, and to act upon that which you're going to be showing us. And we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week on our live internet study program. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, and let's just jump right into Romans 14 Unplugged, Feast and Fast and Food. Oh my. We're down near the end of our study, and we left off last week right in the middle of Tim Haig's comments about the final verse in Romans chapter 14. What I'm going to do tonight is I'll back up a little bit so I can get a running context. I'll read down through this um, final um, paragraph, including Tim Haig's comments as well as Barnes' comments. I'll read down through that nonstop because it's self-explanatory. And then um, I'm going to take the majority of the time to actually go back up into the study and perform an overview of the entire chapter and kind of highlight what we um, talked about and what we learned. I will probably just use the, the, the commentary that you're looking at in front of you. So I'll go verse by verse, and that'll take the whole study. And then basically after tonight... Technically, we're done with Romans 14. I'll pray about it and see if I need to cover any extra material next week. Otherwise, we may be ready to just move on and um, call it uh, call it quits on Romans 14. It's been a long study. Um, it went a lot longer than I thought it was going to go, but um, it's been fun. I hope it's been fun. And this study tonight will provide a kind of a comprehensive overview in case you got lost along the way, okay? So, using my own notes, let's just start right here at the very top and read down through um, these notes. Here's what I have to say in my commentary. In Paul's concluding thoughts on this sensitive food and table fellowship issue, where we encounter our final somewhat practical down-to-earth solution for avoiding the kinds of judgmental and condescending attitudes that might crop up between the Christian communities there in Rome. Remember, um, we're talking about Jews and Gentiles that have been uh, brought together under Messiah, and that's what I say in my commentary. These communities are likely made up of a majority of Gentiles and a minority of Jews, both under the banner of the Lordship of Yeshua, the Messiah of Israel, and Savior of the world. And there's nothing wrong with having a majority of one versus the other. It simply caused a, um, what you might call almost like a power shift in Paul's day, because the Jewish people for so long had been used to being um, the only ones who were at the center of, ever, of all activities. They didn't really have to kind of worry about uh, a heavy influx of visitors or uh, proselytes. I mean, th- those people were always there. Um, and they were welcome in the synagogues, like you read about in the book of Acts, you know, G- Gentiles are Jews, uh, Gentiles visiting the synagogues and things like that. But now suddenly something new was taking place in the um, program of Israel and it was unavoidable. And so um, Gentiles were coming in in mass and the, the big difference was they weren't just coming in as proselytes now. They were coming in retaining their Gentile identity, and yet they were still joining the God of Israel and becoming um, obedient to the scriptures of Israel. And most importantly, they were 
um, professing faith in the Messiah of Israel. All of this was quite shocking and uh, um, revolutionary in Paul's day. So let's keep reading about some of these um, uh, details. I say in my uh, commentary, once again, Barnes' notes on the Bible states that this pragmatic solution quite uh, states this pragmatic solution uh, quite succinctly. So I'm going to insert his comments for us here to ponder. And um, we're just going to look at Barnes' notes on, on the last two verses. Remember, we're working from the context in these last two verses about Paul says, um, do you have faith? Then keep it to yourself. Happy is the man who, who uh, doesn't condemn himself for what he does, for what he eats. And um, uh, in this concluding section, we're kind of asking the question, um, is Paul asking the, the Roman believers to keep their faith in Messiah to themselves, their faith in God to themselves, so as not to upset people who don't have that same faith? And uh, some commentators have kind of kind of danced along that line of, yes, that's what Paul was asking, even though they didn't outright say that, because that's that would be contradicting, contradicting, contradictory to much of what the New Testament teaches us to share our faith. But I thought I'd share some brief comments here from Barnes just to make sure that that's not what Paul's talking about. Barnes says, Hast thou faith? Meaning he's quoting the verse now, right? Uh, the word faith here refers only to the subject under discussion. What is the subject under discussion? The subject of meats, drinks, etc. So Barnes is right, and that's why I included his notes here. Even though Barnes is approaching this verse from a messianic perspective, he's still right on the money as far as I can tell. The faith here that Paul is telling them to have to themselves or to themselves is just another way of talking about the, the policy or the personal perspective on food that we discussed over and over again in this particular commentary. The idea that there were meats that were being offered up to idols in Paul's day that were then passed on through to the common marketplaces that were then available for purchase. And if you're a religious Jew, then you are very, very likely avoiding that type of meat market because of the questionable origin of the meat. However, if you were a Gentile, then you didn't have any such, um, say, avoidance policy. You could feel that you were you could freely buy the meat particularly um meat that had been um uh you know made available for public purchase and then bring it home and serve it up to your family and the challenges that the, the that this dynamic was presenting to paul's communities was very real to them it's, it's not so much to us today because we don't have the um uh, common meat markets where where meat was offered up to an idol on on Friday and then sold in the um, uh, uh, supermarket, the butchers uh, the very next day or, you know, on Sunday or something like that, or, the, you know, the beginning of the week. We don't have that um, type of dynamic where we're thinking about, was this meat offered up to an idol? You know, when I go shopping in the supermarkets and I'm looking at meat in the butcher department, I'm not thinking in the back of my head, was this offered up to an idol a few days ago? <laughs> right, so at least in most Western countries, that's not the case. Maybe it might be the case in some uh, countries around the world where idolatry is still maybe 
has a heavy presence, but um, we've learned to kind of just dismiss all of that. So these are issues that were more real to Paul's communities, and so we have to kind of appreciate the challenges that they discussed there. Um, do you believe, uh, Byrne says, that it is right to eat all kinds of food, etc.? The apostle had admitted that this was the true doctrine. Keep in mind that Barnes is working with a Christian um, notion that uh, uh, that the Gentiles didn't have to keep kosher, and that's what he means by, do you believe it's right to eat all kinds of food? But as we're going to learn when I go down through my review, um, I think that's not the best way to interpret the passage, but I'll, I'll, I'll discuss that later. Uh, Barnes continues, but he maintains that it should be so held so as not to give offense. So either way, uh, even if I'm wrong, even if it is a case of you thinking that you could eat everything, including that which what the Torah didn't deem as kosher back in Paul's day, either way... Um, we're talking about not what the Bible commands you to share with other people, uh, as in matters of righteousness or standards that God lays out for the communities. Rather, we're talking about personal choices when it comes to um, how you understand the situation. And therefore, uh, there's room for personal opinion, and in that um, discussion... If you're judging one another based on personal opinion, well, then you're in the wrong. Um, Barnes continues, have it to thyself, meaning this is your personal opinion. It's not something that the Bible would command us to share with other people, such as the gospel, right? This seems to be obvious to me. Do not obtrude your faith or opinion on others. Don't force your opinion on others when it comes to matters of personal Halakha related to food here. Be satisfied with cherishing the opinion and acting on it in a private, uh, on it in private without bringing it forward to produce disturbance in the church. Um, and then the last um, paragraph that Barnes uh, presents, uh, following along the same sentence, have it to thyself before God. Uh, the idea is that where God is the only witness, God sees your sincerity. And he's going to approve of your opinion. And this is right in the step with what Paul talks about very early on in the chapter about how that um, each one answers to his own master and that God is going to approve of your decision. And this brings us into the question of where to bring us into the discussion of whether or not these were matters that would be contrary to what God had already outlined elsewhere. So I think we can use common sense when it comes to that. You know, if, if I think, if under my own personal opinion, I've got this opinion that I can do some action, or I've got the freedom to um, walk a particular lifestyle that's contrary to the word of God, well then I can't expect God to um, approve of that lifestyle. So um, God is obviously the witness. God sees my sincerity and will approve of my opinion. But this cannot be the case if the decision that I've come to is contrary to the word of God in matters of holiness or righteousness or morality, etc., etc. So we, 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 we can use good wisdom and judgment when it comes to this type of um, discussion. That opinion, cherish and act on. So obviously it's a matter that is um, open for discussion and a matter of personal opinion and a matter where the Bible isn't black or white and where it doesn't seem to be deduced that it is um, immoral or... Um, uh, unethical or or unrighteous or something like that. So whatever this opinion is, uh, uh, we can act on it, Barnes says, yet not, not so as to give offense and to produce disturbance in the church. Um, God sees your sincerity. 
Burns uh, says, he sees that you're right and you will not offend him, right? You're not openly trying to f- shove your opinion down other people's throat and things like that. Your brethren do not see that you're right and they will be offended. So they don't understand your opinion, your fellow Christian brothers or fellow community members. And therefore, if you were to simply push your opinion into their face uh, forcibly, then you would be in the wrong, right? You would be in a position where you're judging them by your actions or judging them by their non-actions and things like that. And so those are the notes that um, Barnes provided. Let's turn quickly to Tim Haig's uh, notes. Uh, Lastly, I say in my commentary, since Tim Haig of TorResource.com, in my opinion, quite often supplies practical truths that are so vital for us to properly understand the Apostle Paul, or properly understand the Apostle Paul from a um, first century messianic perspective, then I say that we can draw from his commentary on Romans 14, we can draw on our commentary and this study on Romans 14, we can draw it to a close by supplying one final quote from him as well. Okay, so let's look at Haig. Um, Addressing verses 22 and 23, which are the last two verses in the commentary. Here's what uh, Tim Haig says in his uh, lengthy Romans commentary. So first we've got a quote. These are the verses themselves. Uh, Quote, The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. And so um, that's the verse in question. Here's what... uh, Tim Haig has to say, in the context, faith, he got it in quotes there, faith, means the conviction that one has the God-given right to a particular halakha, as I mentioned earlier. He's not talking about, Paul's not talking about matters of um, biblical uh, commission, like, for instance, near the end of Matthew, uh, chapter 28, Yeshua commissions the disciples to go into all the world and to do what? To share the gospel, to preach the gospel wherever you go preach this good news and thus people will learn about this truth as you are going and preaching this is not a matter of personal opinion you know the disciples personally believe that Jesus is the Messiah and therefore they're going to share their personal opinion with everyone they meet as they go and travel And then Paul comes along and says, if you've got this personal opinion, you should keep it to yourself. That faith that you have. So this is not what Paul's talking about. I think we can uh, ascertain that um, quite easily, even though some people might still have that question. I don't even really know why I had to bring the issue up, but you'd be amazed how um, sometimes verses that seem to be um, common sense are overlooked. Tim Hake continues, Paul is not exhorting the Roman believers to hide their confession of Yeshua. As ridiculous as that might sound, we still have to bring that point up. The fact that Tim Haig's not the only one that brings it up, that I brought it up, and that other commentators have to address the issue means there must be some people out there who might think, hmm, if it's going to upset somebody if I witness to them, maybe I'd be better if I just don't witness to them, right? Isn't it better if we just all get along? Well, actually, the gospel is going to be offensive no matter what. And you know what? That's just God's department. Let God handle that part. You share the truth, and don't be don't be in your face about it. And I'm not saying we have to be um, uh, what's the word, rude or um, uh, you know, um, challenging or uh, confrontational on purpose. We don't have to be um, 
to the point where we're trying to arouse anger and stuff. But don't be afraid of sharing your witness. Uh, maybe it's sometimes in deed, not in word. Um, maybe it's a, just a witness of your life. But either way, um, uh, the gospel is going to be offensive because the gospel is going to point out sin. So let the Holy Spirit take care of that. Timaeus continues, but his point, speaking of Paul, is that one may possess an inward freedom without having to express it outwardly. So we're talking about matters of personal opinion, what Jewish people call halakha, or what church might, church people might call um, church policy or something like that. What is more, or what is more, this freedom, this inward freedom allows for one to bend in order to accommodate the other person. So clearly we are discussing issues where the Bible isn't black and white. Um, kosher issues uh, are black and white, meaning God outlined to Israel what Israel was to obey regarding what animals were to regard as clean and unclean and what food uh, products were derived from those animals were to be uh, eaten or avoided. So we're not talking about matters of opinion. God didn't say to Israel, let's take a vote. What do you guys think? Do you think pork should be unclean or no? You think lamb should be okay or no? That wasn't the, um, the way the discussion was handled. If you go back and read Leviticus, God said, um, you know, thus saith the Lord, basically, Leviticus chapter 11 to Deuteronomy chapter 14. Um, Moses tell the people, this is the command of the Lord. This is my opinion. These are the commandments they are to follow. That's the end of discussion. So um, we should be able to ascertain that that's not what Paul's talking about. Um, Tim says that this is not bending in issues of morality or ethics, like I mentioned earlier. If God says something is right, then we are to obey that. We are to come in line with that. We are to adopt that. Um, standard of righteousness, of morality, of ethics. Um, it's not open for discussion, um, but in matters of personal choices, right, personal halakha and opinions, and in this case, conflicting halakha, Tim Hegg uh, concludes, that's really the issue that Paul's bringing up. That's the, that's the way to understand the passage, and, and we'll see this here in a moment. One may retain and enjoy one's freedom inwardly without having to express it to others. So if you've got an opinion about something that's questionable, about a gray area, you can express your opinion in a, in a church group. Um, you can bring it up to discussion at your Bible study. You can even approach your pastor about it, and perhaps you'll receive some type of counsel there. But if it's something that might be controversial, something that might cause some friction in, the, in a larger group, Perhaps it's better if you just keep it to yourself. You know, if they if they find out that you know um, you're doing something that the Bible says is not necessarily forbidden or prohibited, but it's something that um, people might go one way or the other, and it could be divisive. Um, then maybe it's something you better keep to yourself. Something like that. In verse 23, Paul says, "But he who doubts is condemned if he eats." Right there's the context. It is an issue of um, the faith that Paul says one that you have. Keep it to yourself. It's the faith to eat or not eat. That's the context. It's not the faith of to share your uh, faith in Messiah or not to share your faith in Messiah. Paul says, "But he who doubts is condemned if he eats." It doesn't say he who doubts is condemned if he doesn't share his faith in Messiah. Understand? That's the context, and he's condemned. 
Why? Paul says because his eating is not from faith. So Paul swings back around and uses the same Greek word to show us that he's talking about faith in matters of food, not faith in matters of messiahship. And Paul concludes by saying whatever is not from faith is sin. So he uses the same Greek words, word, some form of pistis or something like that, three times in these short two verses to anchor us in the idea that he's talking about a um a conviction, well, not even not necessarily even a conviction, but just uh, an opinion or a halakha, like I said. Um, maybe it's a policy that you've come to um, impose upon yourself or your family or your small group or your community. And uh, Tim Hague's uh, uh, notes, he says, in matters of personal halakha, right, to go contrary to one's conscience constitutes sin. Um if you decided on a matter between you and God, and then you're going to go against that, that's where you're messing with your own conscience. You're messing with your own relationship between you and God. You're you're causing problems for you, right? You're the problem, and so um, you don't even need to bring anybody else into the discussion to know that you're the problem. Whatever is not of faith is sin. That's the way Paul puts it. If one slips and slides, Tim Hague notes, if you slip inside with the prevailing halakha without recourse to one's own convictions, um, he has adopted a pattern of life that is foolish. So there are people like this out there. They just um, go with the flow, right? Um, this week, they think it's okay to um, do uh, you know XYZ um, activity or whatever. So the group's doing it, so I'm going to do it too. Even though they don't really think that that might be the right thing to do, they're going to do it. And then they hear a sermon from the pastor from the pulpit condemning people who are doing that activity. And then the pastor says, you guys need to stop doing that. And then this guy backs off and says, okay, yeah, yeah, that's right. I shouldn't be doing that. So he's kind of just, go. he's wishy-washy is what we would say in today's terminology. This is a foolish uh, lifestyle. This, this is a position where you're not really going to stand for anything because you're just going to keep going whichever way the tide is going. Um, you're going to put yourself in a position where really you're going to one day trip up and just cross the line of morality and, and um, ethical decisions. You're going to end up doing something that's contrary to the Bible altogether. Tim puts it this way, such undisciplined living will inevitably result in sin, right? For it takes... Uh, for it takes its cue from man rather from God, rather than from God. So again, do what the Bible says, but in those cases where there's some gray area, well then you can come to your own decision without having to um, a share that decision with other people in your group, or and or b you certainly don't want to force that opinion on someone else, especially if it isn't something that's black and white according to the Torah. Uh, Tim Hay continues, "What is more." To coerce someone to go contrary to their own conscience in matters of personal halakha is to encourage them to sin. So not only are you putting yourself in a position of sin um, by um, kind of becoming wishy-washy, taking one opinion one week, taking the next opinion the next week, you're putting yourself in a position where you're going to sin, then uh, if you are forcing your opinion on someone else, an opinion that's not 100% biblical, it's just your own opinion, then you, you're encouraging them to sin, especially if you're saying, hey, look, if you don't do it the way that I'm telling you to do it, then God's not going to accept you. And we know that 
um, Christian history and religious history is rife with people kind of forcing their opinions on other people um, and forcing the group to take a, a course of action that's not necessarily outlined in the Bible as 100% uh, the right thing or wrong thing to do. Uh, Tim Hank continues the oft-told tale of, um, and you may have heard of this, you may not have, just listen up. The oft-told tale of offering a Jewish person this is kind of more modern, who has recently come to faith in Yeshua. I'm modern by um, um, uh, church standards, meaning I don't think this took place. It may have been taking, may have started early on in the church, but I, I don't know how far back I can trace this. But a uh, person who's recently come to faith in Yeshua some offered them some non-kosher food just to prove to him his newfound liberty, right? Hey, you're free in Christ. You can eat whatever you want. So have a ham sandwich or eat this piece of pork. I think there are reports of that happening, you know, um, quite early on, but um, it's certainly not something that Paul would have endorsed. That's the point I'm trying to bring up. It's not something that's found in the book of Acts where Gentiles and Jews were um, coming together in, in mass. It's not something that, that we see in the apostolic scriptures anywhere. Um, but this particular practice, uh, Tim Seggs, Tim Hague says, not only flies in the face of Torah, right, telling Jewish people to eat non-kosher food, but it entirely disregards the teaching of Paul in this particular text that we're studying as well about um, have the faith that you have to yourself and things like that. And don't judge one another because of the personal opinions that you come to. Uh, Tim Hague's concluding statement, the categorical statement um, that, quote, whatever is not of faith is sin, and quote, should be understood to mean that in matters of personal halakha, one must be convinced on the basis of one's conscience in the realm of faith in God, and that if one acts contrary to this, then one is sinning. And I think it should be somewhat self-explanatory, um, the statements that uh, uh, Tim Hicks making here. But just to be sure, go back and read the um, the passage for yourself in its entirety. We're going to do a little skimming over it uh, right now for the next, say, five or ten minutes, um, just to do an overview. Um, or do we want to? Do I want to break it off tonight now, make make the Romans 14 early, study uh, close a little early? I think I'll do that. Because I, I don't know how long it's going to take for me to go back through the notes and hit um, some of the highlighted points. So let's stop the commentary tonight and call it quits. Uh, we finish officially the commentary, so pat yourself on the back. You made it through another one of Ariel's really, really, really long studies. Um, what we'll do next week is uh, click Return to Table of Contents, and we'll simply go... Uh, um, down through the commentary and hit some of the highlights and paying particular attention to um there was a section where i actually wrote all of the uh the verses yeah, it's under scope and style of study and i i made the uh the points right there and you can see which verses and questions that i arose uh, that i brought up uh in the study but we're gonna go back through that next week but that'll do it for romans 14 unplugged feast and fast and food oh my these are the live internet studies. This is episode number 167. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilatunubado Thornton, the, the Harvest Congregation in Thornton, Colorado. Uh, you're welcome to join us week after week as long as we're having services. But if not, be sure to catch our recent sermon videos that are uploaded to our site week after week. Uh, just click on the thumbnail that you see on your screen now to catch Pastor Mark's live sermon series. 
I also have my own website that I'd like to um, invite you to um, log on to or visit. You don't really have to log into anything. You just have to hit this web address. Go to tetzetora.com. That's www.tetzetora.com. Tetzetora.com. And click on any of the links that you see on your screen right now to avail yourself of all the resources that I make available to um, uh, everyone week after week. Speaking of um, online resources, check out my YouTube channel. If you have a chance, go to youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tetzator Ministries and uh, check out all the resources that are made available there every day. In fact, just like it says, updated daily, I'm typically pushing a commentary out or a short video uh, uh, out to the YouTube channel uh, every day or sometimes even multiple times a day. So make sure you subscribe, uh, hit the bell, um, leave comments. Um, leave a thumbs up and make sure you're sharing all the uh, content with your other friends and family members. These live internet studies are brought to you each week, uh, every Saturday afternoon, late afternoon. This is episode number 167 for January 22nd, 2022 USA date. The uh, meeting time, Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Standard Time. The hour-long study is broken up into two segments. Romans 14 Unplugged, which we just went through. We were in part 83 tonight. And then the um, segment two that we're about to turn to is exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Paper 3, Who or What is the Holy Spirit, Part 99, that we're about to turn to. And then, uh, if we have time, we'll look at the video. What does Leviticus say about the cleanliness or uncleanliness of some creatures? This is right in line with our Roman study, right? Um, what about clean and unclean foods? What does the Bible actually say about that? Hopefully, we'll get to watch that video tonight as well, okay? For the live studies, if you'd like to join us, uh, you need to get access to Skype somehow. Um, you don't even really need to um, join Skype or create a Skype account. If you're on my website at tatesatora.com and you click on that blue link, it will take you to the live Skype study if it is during the time frame that I mentioned earlier. So hopefully you can join us from Saturday afternoons from 5 p.m. to 6 p.m. Uh, Central Standard Time uh, during these live internet studies. And then one last uh, note real quick. If you've got um, money burning a hole in your pocket. No, seriously, if you're, if um, the Lord lays it on your heart to share with my ministry financially, this is the mechanism that you can do so. The opportunity is made available at the bottom of my website. Click the little yellow donate button and share your um, uh, resources that way. And I would sure be blessed to be on the receiving end of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. All right, let's turn to exploring the Shema, discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're in section three of paper three, who or what is the Holy Spirit, who or what spirit is indwelling believers. And um, we were, we're working our way down through some passages. Let me scroll down into the notes, and you can see where we left off. We were basically in the book of Corinthians, um, reading through some of these notes, um, and we stopped at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 14 through 18, a very 
somewhat controversial passage, we're really only discussing the issue of Trinity when Paul talks about how that the Spirit is the Lord, right? And when one turns to the Lord. So let's read the passage, and then I'll go back and comment on it. Um, 2 Corinthians 3, 14 through 18, this is ESV. Paul says, verse 14, but their minds were hardened. He's talking, by the way, we're breaking into context, but he's talking about um, unbelieving Israel, not not accepting Yeshua as Messiah. Their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that is, to this day, when they read through the pages of the um, words that were um, spoken to Moses to write down and to codify and to um, put into circulation in Israel's um Communities, that's what we mean by Old Covenant there. Um, when they read this this body of literature that came earlier, we could better say the earlier covenant or the elder covenant or the um, the, the words of the, um, the ancient covenant. Um, the word old there has so many nuances that are negative in Christian circles that I'm trying to avoid, if you can tell by my explanation. But that's not even really where we're going in the study. Just follow along. Paul says, when they read this body of literature, that same veil remains unlifted. And of course, the the state of condition of a person reading through this is a description of Old Covenant itself. There's a technical aspect to this phrase Old Covenant that's not simply the document that they're reading, but it is um, the state of condition of the heart of a person who's reading. Why am I highlighting that? Because even if you read through the quote-unquote new covenant, if your mind is hardened and the veil is in place, then you are still an old covenant person, no matter if you read through the new covenant scriptures. Understand what I'm saying? It doesn't really matter what you're reading. The, the important point is, what is the state of your mind? Is it hardened? Are your eyes darkened? Is the veil in place? If the answer is yes to all those questions, then it doesn't matter if you read the Old Testament or the New Testament, then um, you're not going to get any benefit out of it until until what? What does Paul say? Because only through um, Christ is the veil taken away, right? The veil remains unlifted because only through Christ is it, the veil taken away. So it is the Messiah who has to open the eyes of an individual who's reading through any particular passage of Scripture. And verse 15 and 16 is where we, and 17, is where we start getting this really cryptic language about Yeshua and the Spirit. So listen to this. Paul says, yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, right, linking us back to Old Covenant, they said earlier. So it is a body of literature that someone is reading. And in this example, it's it's the, um, the words of the Tanakh or Moses. When Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. So we know he's got Israel in view here. But look at this. In verse 16, he says, but when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The context lends itself to um, identifying the Lord here in this verse as Yeshua, the Lord Messiah, Yeshua. When one turns to Messiah, that's kind of a, um, a metonym or a different word, uh, an, um, a synonym for the Messiah here. When one turns to the Messiah, the veil is removed. Notice the exclusivity. Paul is not saying if you simply turn to God, the veil is removed. Because all of Israel, at least the religious part of Israel, is quite... Um, adamant about the fact that they are already serving God and worshiping God, and that they've already turned to God. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Exclusive faith in Messiah is what Paul is teaching here. 
And then in verse 17, remember there were no verse breaks in the original Greek. Paul says, now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Now this is a really strange way of speaking. It's not really the way that we would normally think of describing Yeshua. Jesus is the Spirit. In Trinitarian circles, we think of three persons. God the Father, that's person number one. God the Son, that's person number two. And God the Holy Spirit, that's person number three. But when Paul says in verse 17, the Lord, which we know from the context of this passage is person number two. Now the Lord is person number three. See how he's kind of overlapping their identities in this odd uh, passage. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's some equivocation there too, some ambiguity. The Spirit of the Lord, elsewhere in the Bible, the Spirit of the Lord is kind of referring to God's Spirit, and throughout the Tanakh, the Spirit of the Lord is equated with God's Spirit, or at least the Holy Spirit, right? Recall Genesis 1.1. The Spirit of the Lord hovered over the surface of the waters. And yet, in verse 16 and 17, Paul's using, he's, he's kind of circulating through this equivocal, um, ambiguous kind of uh, uh, statement, but not ambiguous to the point that it can't be comprehended, it can't be apprehended, it can't be affirmed by faith that we know he's talking about Yeshua. We know he's talking about the spirit of Messiah that comes into our hearts and lifts the veil so that we are set free. And that's what he says. Where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Freedom from what? Freedom from sin. Freedom from slavery. Freedom from our own personal bondage. Um, freedom from the uh, the chains that have held us uh, down for in our entire life. Verse 18, Paul concludes, and we all with unveiled face, speaking of the community there, beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed, transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from who? From God. No, from the Lord who is the Spirit. Again, he closes with that kind of cryptic statement, terminology that we're not used to um, speaking in fact, or, or, or articulating. Paul doesn't really talk this way in other passages, but he does so to the Corinthians. Why did he turn? Did he uh, um, um, write this way? We don't know. Um, other than that, the Holy Spirit um, uh, prompted him to write this way and has preserved the words this way. But, um, I mean, I have to wonder if Paul stepped back and read his own letter and said, why did I write that? Uh, no, seriously. Um, these are some wonderful, beautiful, in my opinion, triadic. Remember we talked about that last week. Triadic, T-R-I-A-D-I-C. Passages that invoke or evoke, whatever word you want to use there, that bring in references to um, the three persons without using the word person, without actually saying that this is a Trinity passage. Um, that's what I mean by triadic passages or scripture references that, um, according to um, the verse numberings, uh, capture at least references to, to all three of the persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's what I mean by triadic. So let's keep reading. The exercise that we're performing here as we read through these verses is simply to demonstrate that as 
Trinitarians, those who hold to the Orthodox view, Orthodox with a small o, that God is one being, he's one what, he's one entity, and yet he expresses himself in this complexity of triunity, of Father, Son, Holy Spirit, of this um, uh, challenge for us as humans. As we read in one part of our Bible, God is one, right? Deuteronomy 6.4, from which this study is named. And yet, we read that Yeshua and the Father are one, right? I and my Father are one. Uh, and I don't think he was talking ontologically there, right? Although he could have been. It was more likely that he was uh, bringing in the idea of we're one in purpose of 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 um, of, um, of will, of um of um, decision-making process, right? Over and over, Yeshua yielded himself to the Father. What the Father wants me to do, that's what I do. Meaning, his will is my will, and I've made myself in alignment with his will. I've lined myself with his will. I, his will and my will, they're one will. Uh, he says it, I obey. Um, you know, even in, in, the, in the garden, Yeshua cried out to the Father, you know, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. That would be Yeshua's opinion. But then he followed it up immediately with, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. So the oneness of Son and Father is demonstrated in Yeshua's obedience, if not entirely ontologically, because Yeshua is of a human nature, whereas the Father has no humanity, as far as we can tell. Um, you know, barring the fact that he showed up looking like a man in Genesis chapter 18 in front of Abraham. So, you know, three men approach the tent at Mamre there. Go back and read the passage. We're having these discussions on the issues of Trinity, and we're focusing on the identity of the third person. Who or what Holy Spirit indwells us? As we read through these passages, this is an exercise for us. We read passage A, and it tells us God's Spirit indwells us. We read passage B, and it tells us the Messiah comes to dwell within us. The Spirit of Messiah, by His Spirit, comes to take up residency within us. And then we read passage C, and and it tells us in no unmistakable terms that you have been filled with the Holy Spirit, or that the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of you. So this is the exercise. Taken all together, all three passages, who lives inside of us? Is it God the Father? Is it God the Son? Or is it God the Holy Spirit? The answer is yes. That's the way I believe we should be interpreting our Bibles. And that, I know, is kind of uncomfortable for many people. It's uncomfortable for um, Unitarians to articulate their faith that way. But I'm of the opinion that if the Bible gives me the opportunity and gives me the freedom to express my belief in God in this triune fashion, it indeed pushes me into that direction. It compels me to move in that opinion, to move into that uh, arena of uncertainty, of mystery, of majesty. Then who am I to deny the Bible its truth, to deny the Bible its place. If God expresses himself in triune majesty, who am I to deny that mystery and to 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 um, uh, take that uh, uh, majesty away from him? It's my place simply to um, worship him. Let's keep reading. 2 Corinthians 13, 14. The grace of, this is another triadic passage, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice by this point in time in history, when Paul's writing his letters, that the church, the body of of believers who had been expressing their faith in the God of Israel minus conversion to Judaism, so the Gentile Christian element, there had been this large kind of 
um, adaptation of the word Lord in the Greek from kurios, which was representing the Hebrew word YHVH, the tetragrammaton name of God, Yahweh, as it's pronounced by uh, many um, interpreters. This Greek word kurios, Lord, had been um, utilized by the early church members to express the... Um, identity of Jesus, of the Messiah, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even though, if you read throughout, th read through the, um, the Tanakh, especially reading it using the Greek version of the Tanakh, which is known as the Septuagint, the LXX, then the word Lord there, kurios, almost in exclusively refers to God. Right, Yahweh, and so it's it's we kind of just re, we gloss over this without even batting an eye in the in the modern churches because we're so used to referring to Jesus as Lord, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't even think twice, but we have to stop and remind ourselves. This is kind of a mini study within a, within a study. We have to stop and remind ourselves that in the first century, the word kudios, when used in circles where Jewish people were already reading a Tanakh in the Greek, that said kudios. And it was representing God the Father. Well, then to hear something like the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ had its own separate bit of challenge and nuance and equivocation and and ambiguity baked into it just from that word one word one word kudios or Lord. So keep that in mind when you're reading through this. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, what? Okay. All right. So he continues, and the love of God, right? And the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is a great example of a triadic passage that I keep um, um, mentioning. It's not necessarily a Trinity passage, although if you want to say it is, I'm fine with that. I'm not going to go to blows over that. All right. I'm not going to argue about is it triadic, is it Trinity, because there's a little bit of overlap in the, in the uh, definition. But the reason I'm not calling it a Trinity passage is because there's nothing uh, particularly over, overly um, ontologically um, Trinity-defining in the passage. This is not saying the grace of our three-part God who is part one, Lord Jesus Christ, part two, uh, God the Father, and part three, Holy Spirit. That being, yeah, he needs to be with you all. That's the point I'm trying to make. If the verse was... Um, articulated that way, if it was spelled out like that, then perhaps maybe it would be a, and I'm using air quotes in my fingers for those of you who can't see me, it would be Trinitarian. But that's not what it, what I'm saying. In other words, Unitarians can read this passage and not walk away with a uh, sense that that Paul's knocking them over the head with a Trinity teaching. Um, but they would recognize that three um, um, entities or identities or personages of uh, that they don't really like that word person unitarians don't like that word person that much uh, they don't like it at all uh that's more uh, trinitarian lingo right um but three some things are being mentioned the grace of the lord jesus christ he's the messiah he's the he's the front man for god then the love of god he's the one that's pulling all the strings from heaven and then the fellowship of the holy spirit and then most um Unitarians are going to interpret the word Holy Spirit there as God's very spirit. They're not going to say he's a third person of the Trinity. They're simply going to say it's another way to describe um, the very will of God in action, the very power of God, or as um, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons like to describe it, the very uh, active force of God, the Holy Spirit. 
So we, we kind of already know. We Trinitarians kind of are already familiar with the way that um, Unitarians interact with any given passage. Let's keep go, working our way down through these passages. We've only got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, about eight left to do. I think we might be able to take a good bite out of this uh, tonight, keep working our way down through these. If we don't finish all of these verses, no big deal. We're not in any hurry on this particular study. What does Paul say in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, ESV, quote, And because you are sons, speaking to the community there, Jews and Gentiles, with a heavy emphasis on the Gentile element, because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Father into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Again, here's another passage where... Um, we could call it a triadic passage because it mentions Father, Son, and Spirit. It even has the word Father, and it has the word Son, and it has the word Spirit. It has all three of those buzzwords that we Trinitarians are used to describing when we're having discussions on the issues of Trinity, and we're having um, Trinity, um, um, we're trying to press our point that God is Trinity, um, even though that's not really the point of Paul's message at the moment. He's not trying to explain to the, he's not really, I don't think, he's trying to get the Galatian Gentiles to believe that they are suddenly becoming um, uh, related to this triune God. Um, his point is the, f the fact that they don't have to go through a conversion policy to change their status in order to be counted as genuine sons and daughters and members of Abraham's family, right? That's his main point in this part of the letter. But germane to our study on Trinity is that God sent the Spirit of His Son. Those Unitarians and Oneness Pentecostals and Jehovah's Witnesses and Christadelphians and Iglesia Christio and Mormons and uh, standard garden variety monotheists who want to challenge the idea that God is the Spirit and that God, this singular being, who's numerically one to himself and only himself, and therefore the Spirit of God is God and God is the Spirit, have a hard time explaining the fact that God sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. If God is a singular being and the Spirit of God is equal to God himself, like the Spirit of Ariel is in fact equal to Ariel, right? I cannot separate the Spirit of Ariel from Ariel. I can't send my Spirit out to do some work while I stay home and do other work the way God can send his Spirit forth from himself and do work for him while God the Father stays in one location, right? If we can speak that way. God sends the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. And yet we read in other passages that it is God who has come with come come into us. God makes his abode with us. And yet we read in other passages that it's the Holy Spirit that has taken up residency within us. And so you can see why I keep why I've entitled this section who or what spirit is indwelling us as believers. You know, the Bible gives us the answer. And the answer isn't always as neatly cut and dried or less nuanced than we would like to admit. It is kind of um, uh, leaning uh, towards one answer sometimes and then leaning towards another answer at other times. It, it kind of um, draws you into the mystery of God's identity without allowing you to put your finger on it and say, aha, I figured God out. He is this. And then we kind of draw up a formula and figure out what God is, right? We've, we've got him uh, dissected under our Petri dish in our, in our science lab, and we think we've figured him out. We can, we can now um, um, uh, you know, close the book on the study. God, God, is, God can't be so neatly 
uh, uh, dissected like that. It's the point I'm trying to make. Let the Bible speak for itself. Read the Bible in all of its beauty and all of its wonder and all of its majesty and in all of its mystery. How can God send the spirit of his son, who is a human, into our hearts? I, last time I checked, Jesus is human. When was it possible for the spirit of a human to dwell into in the hearts of everyone simultaneously? Notice it's a plural passage, into our hearts, right? I mean, that just kind of boggles the mind. It, it stretches the imagination. And yet, this is what's going on. So let's keep going through this exercise. You guys are kind of getting the idea here. Ephesians 2. Most of these are, are obviously the New Testament is primarily penned by Paul. So he has the opportunity to share all of these different perspectives, which I might add, if Paul believed if Paul was a Unitarian and he thoroughly, thoroughly believed that God was only one and he was numerically one, or if he was a oneness Pentecostal, Paul, and he believed that the name of God was Jesus, right? Like oneness, many oneness Pentecostals purport that the name of the being known as God is actually Jesus. Or if Paul was a modalist, if he believed that there was this one being who simply put on three different disguises from time to time to interact with humans, right? That's modalism. If Paul were not a Trinitarian himself, something, I mean, obviously Paul wouldn't use the the term Trinitarian because that term was not in use in Paul's day, as far as we can tell. Here's the point I'm trying to make. If Paul were simply a, a card-carrying oneness Pentecostal or, or a card-carrying Unitarian, someone who didn't believe in a complex unity uh, of, of God, then why did Paul switch terminology and nomenclature from time to time when it comes to all of these um, uh, all this verbiage about God. I mean, we're reading through Paul's notes here. They have been preserved for us by the Holy Spirit of God. And here we have it. Passage A has one term. Passage B has a separate term. Passage 3 has a third term. And sometimes you have one passage that kind of mixes them all together, like we just read. If Paul was so cleanly cut and dry, if it was all just one way to understand God, then why didn't he just write one way and leave less ambiguity and less equivocation for us to deal with here in modern 21st century Christianity. All right, let's keep studying. We're almost done. Um, let's look at just this one uh, last passage here in Ephesians 2, and then um, we'll call it for tonight for this um, uh, Trinity study. Ephesians 2, 17-22, Paul says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Speaking of Messiah's gospel message. Verse 18. For through him we both have access, ready? Have access in one spirit to the Father. Now there's some ambiguity there. Verse 18. Is Paul talking about the spirit of Messiah? Or is he talking about the spirit of the Father that we have access to? Is it the access in one spirit to the Father? Is that the Father's spirit that gives us access? Think in persons for a moment. Or is it the spirit of Messiah that gives us access to the Father? Or or is it the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who gives us this access to the Father? Paul doesn't say, but we could go either way, right? <laughs> because there's one spirit. And that's the mystery as well. Is the Holy Spirit God's spirit? The answer is yes. Is the Holy Spirit the spirit of Messiah? The answer is yes. But yet, isn't the Holy Spirit his own 
Is, isn't he his own, his own person? The answer is yes again. So that's the beauty of the challenge of working through verses like these that we're um, working with. Let's keep reading. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then in verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. There's our our equivocal term, Lord, again, right? Our our, ambigu our ambiguous term. No, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. When I say ambiguous, I don't mean that we can't understand it. That's not the modern term and ambiguity or ambiguous, meaning we can't even fully understand what we're reading. That's what I mean by ambiguous. But what I mean here is that... <clears throat> Without context, the word can be used in multiple different settings. That's what I mean by amb ambiguous in, 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 in my usage here in my study. Um, the word Lord can be used, and the Greek word kurios can be used in other passages to be a description of God, and yet in other passages it's describing the Spirit, and yet in other passages it's describing Yeshua. It's most often in the New Testament uh, describing Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, the Messiah, the Lord. That's what Paul is meaning here. Verse 22, in him, because I mean he moves right in from Lord into in him, meaning the Lord, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God. So he's, he's describing um, the him in the first part of 22 is a separate person from the God in the second half of the verse by the Spirit, which is also another triadic passage. The hymn in the first part of 22 is Yeshua, and then we're being built together into this dwelling place for God, there's first person, by the Spirit, there's third person, unless you think that the word Spirit there is also first person, or unless you think the word Spirit there is second person. And it gets really challenging to try and figure that out. And the beauty is we're not, we're not meant to try and uh, uh, try and separate it all out so that we can definitely say, okay, I've nailed it. I figured God out. In this passage, he's definitely person one. In this passage, he's definitely person two. And in this passage, he's definitely person three. That's not the way the Bible's going to let you figure it out. You're not going to be able to do that. Because the minute you think you've got it figured out, you're going to read another passage where, oh, wait a minute, your formula has to be thrown, all thrown out the window because um, the, the persons are going to be swapped around or something like that. Um, the, the, um, the, or there's going to be some overlap, uh, you know, some blurring of the lines, as it were, some nuances. Maybe we talked about that word nuance last week. So just the, sometimes it's best to just throw your hands up and say, Lord, you are wonderful. You are um, majestic. You are mysterious. I can't always fully comprehend how you can be who you are, but I nevertheless worship you in the beauty of your um, of your mystery. So let's um, call it quits for the uh, Shema study. That'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn to the liturgy. Uh, we'll we'll just kind of work our way through this. I don't know if I'll finish this lit, 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 liturgy tonight. We're, we're going to look at Jeremiah 31, 31 in the Hebrew and in the Greek, and we're going to park out a little bit on the word study of New Covenant, Brit Chadasha in the Greek, or in the Hebrew. Let's start with the um, English, um, and I'm, I'm using BibleHub.com's interlinear tool where one Hebrew word is sitting on top of one English word or group of words so that we can see which words represent which words. And so in English, you can see it in the red there, Jeremiah 31, 31, 
reads, Behold, the days are coming, says Yahweh, and when I will make with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah a covenant new. And you can see right away which words in the Hebrew, even if you can't read read the Hebrew, you can see which words are represented representative of uh, which Hebrew, which English and Hebrew represent one another in true interlinear fashion. The Hebrew, by the way, says, And as I mentioned last week and highlighted, as I bring up those two words, blow them up on your screen for you, the word for covenant is the uh, the Hebrew word brit, and the word for new is the Hebrew word chadasha. And what we learned last week, which I'll just repeat for you, is that um, chadasha, Strong's number 2319, is a word that um, can be defined simply as new. But based on the um, context, it could either evoke brand new, as in chronologically new, or it might evoke renew, as in something that is cycled back around again. I highlighted the fact that Strong's number 2320, um, let me see if I click on this and see what happens. I think it'll take me to, there we go. Strong's 2320 is the Hebrew word chodesh, and not to be confused with the Hebrew word kodesh, right? Listen very carefully. Chodesh Kodesh. So, Kodesh is holy, as in Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit. But Chodesh, as in Rosh Chodesh, is where we get our word for the moon. It's related to the word for month. And so, when we talk about the new moon, it's not a brand new moon in the sky, even though we say new moon. It's actually a renewed moon. It's the same moon that we saw last month. It's just been cycled around again because of, its, of the phases that it went through that we can perceive from planet Earth. So, when we look at this word chadash, which is related, it's in the same family of words uh, to the word chodesh that we just looked at a moment ago, then we could see how that some messianics say the new covenant is not really entirely brand new it's actually a renewal of the mosaic covenant but brought to a place where we can internalize it it's not written on tablets of stone it's now written on our hearts and because it's written on our hearts we can now walk it out the way god intended it to be walked i've heard many messianics kind of explain new covenant that way they say it's the old brought into renewal thus it's the renewed covenant or something like that and I'm not entirely um, uh, uh, dissatisfied with that explanation. It, it has its merit. But I think the force of the way New Covenant is being used and utilized throughout the Bible, it is l- more heavily leaning towards the idea that there's something brand new going on. And so let's look at this. Um, let's look at the LXX real quick, the Septuagint. Here on your screen, what I've got for you is an English rendering, kind of a modified King James Version. Below that, we've got the Hebrew once again. And then next to that, I've got two versions of the Greek, left and right. Um, Not too much difference between them, and we don't need to even focus on all of those. I just want to read the verses once again. The English says, Behold, the days are... I'm sorry, let's try that. There we go. Behold, the days come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. New covenant. 
I think the emphasis is on the newness, the the difference, the um the radical aspect of this covenant that God's making with Israel. Again, the last two words, Brit Hadasha, a covenant which is new. Not necessarily a covenant that is renewed, although it is renewed, and there are aspects of the Torah that are brought into this new covenant because God even says that um I will write them on their hearts, right? Uh, if we were to scroll down and read down through the rest of the um uh, of the uh, of the uh, um, passage, uh, I'll take my laws in verse thirty three, and I'll put my laws into their mind. Which laws? God's laws, which surely must have included the Mosaic legislation, the the Mosaic laws. But sandwiched between verse thirty one and verse thirty three is the explanation that this will not be according to the covenant which I made with their forefathers. So there's something radically new about this covenant that I think the writer is trying to emphasize um, for this particular point. And when we look at the Greek, which we're going to start turning to, uh, let's see if I can blow that up a little bit. There we go. The Greek here, idu hemerai erkantai phasin kudias kai dia thesamai to oiko Israel kai to oiko iuda. And then the last two phrases, or the last two words, dia thekein kainein. What is this new covenant? The Greek word for covenant is um, diathekane, and the Greek word for new is kainane. And if we were to continue uh, studying just the Greek, which we will hear in a bit, we're going to find that the word new has two different choices. So let's keep going down that road. Let's first look at Hebrews 8.8 for a moment. This is the writer to the New Testament pulling the quote from Jeremiah that we just read from Jeremiah 31 into his letter. And this quote, I'm only reading verse 8, but this quote represents the longest single contiguous running or direct quote from the Tanakh into the New Testament anywhere. I don't. I bet you guys didn't know that bit of trivia. The quote from Jeremiah 31, 31 uh, into the New Testament I mean, we know that many, many other passages are quoted in the New Testament from the Tanakh, but this represents the longest um, kind of unbroken quote. The writer to the book of Hebrews says in verse 8 of Hebrews, finding fault for with them, he says, behold, and then he quotes Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord. Notice again, Lord, there is God, right? Not Yeshua. Remember what we talked about in our... Um, uh, uh, our um, exiting, I'm sorry, our um, uh, Trinity study, the, the uh, equivocation on the word Lord there. Um, uh, the, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, uh, the writer to the book of Hebrews says, and I will ratify with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah a covenant new. Uh, a covenant new. So let's read the, the entire Greek. Let's, let me go back up there. Uh, the Greek says, Memphamenos gar autus lege idu and then he quotes, he's quoting, uh, starting with Idu, Behold, Idu, Hemerai, Erkantai, Lege, Kurias, Kai, Sunteleso. Different Greek verb there, I will ratify, than what we read in the Septuagint, but not terribly different from uh, the force of what the other Greek word there says. But Kurias, Kai, Sunteleso, Epiton, Oikon, Israel, and this part's the same. Kai, Epiton, Oikon, Yuda, Diathekain, Kainain. And these last two words, Diathekain, Kainain are the um, new covenant uh, that we are 
discussing in our liturgy. Let's look at this word kinase. I'm sorry, not kinase, kinos, uh, which is the root word. The kine, uh, right there. Let me bring up just those last two uh, words there on the screen for you. There we go. This word kine is rooted in the word Strong's number 2537. If we were to click on that link, uh, this particular adjective, let's take a look at it. Uh, kainos, or kainos, if you want to really stretch out the vowel sounds. Uh, kainos means new or fresh or unused or novel. And notice um, the... Uh, Helps Word Studies uh, says that this word uh, kainas properly new in quality that is innovation fresh in development or opportunity because not found exactly like this before so it's qualitatively new we're going to see that there's a different word if we were wanting to maybe uh, stress the emphasis on chronologically new. That's the only thing I want to kind of highlight to you at the moment. I'm not saying that there's a hard break between the two adjectives that we're going to see here in a moment, kainos and its counterpart, but many times the stress is on new and quality, innovation, fresh in development or opportunity because it was not found exactly like this before, right? So think in terms of the Torah. God told the Torah or God dictated the Torah to Moshe and Israel heard these words or they read the words as they journeyed along and yet the words were not effective to them because it was not coupled with genuine faith on their part. God's words were not um, were not the problem. The problem was, was Israel, right? What do we read in, in um, Hebrews? Uh, one more time. Give me a second. Blow that back down or shrink it. Finding fault with them finding fault with them not finding fault with the words the them in the passage the autus is the people of israel finding fault with israel god says behold the days are coming they all make a new covenant so there wasn't the fault with the torah in in so much as that it had its own built-in limitations but when we talk about um qualitatively different the Torah is qualitatively different in the aspect of, in, in so much as that it moves from the tablets of stone onto hearts of flesh, like God says in Jeremiah, and thus by going from stone to the heart, then it can be walked out by the power of the Spirit. So that's a, a new qualitative uh, development uh, that we read about in this definition. Let's keep going. In Hebrews 12, 24, we find the um, counterpart to the word um, uh, uh, diatheke uh, that we were just looking at a moment ago. I'm sorry, to uh, kinase. Um, let's read this verse, Hebrews 12, 24. There's a different word that we're going to start reading about. Uh, the writer to the book of Hebrews says in, in this chapter, keep in mind it's the same writer. That's why I'm bringing this example up. Same writer, same book, Hebrews. In verse 24, he says, And of a covenant new, the mediator to Jesus and to the blood of sprinkling better things, speaking than that of Abel. I know the Hebrew, the English is a little wooden. Just excuse, excuse that for a moment. We're just using this particular tool. But notice in the Greek, kai diathekes neos. Neos? How come he didn't say kai diathekes kainase like he said earlier? Because it's a different Greek word, slightly different nuance. Um, the rest of the, the, the verse, mesite yesu kai haimati chantismu kretan lalunti paratun habel. This different Greek word that we're looking at, neos, is strong's number 
3501 N E A S NEAS. And what's the root of this word? It's 3501 Strong's number 3501 NEAS or NEAS if you want to say it that way. Um, did you guys see the Matrix? You've ever watched any of the Matrix movies? What's the name of the main character that um, Keanu Reeves plays? His name is Neo, N-E-O. Yeah, his name is taken from the same Greek word, neos, neos, right? And what does, um, what's the definition of this word? According to Strong's Concordance, it means young or new or fresh. It's an adjective. Uh, new moon, right? Youthful, new, fresh. Notice the slight difference in nuance from this word to... Uh, the word we looked at earlier. Kainos has the nuance of new and fresh, uh, unused or novel. But this word has new, fresh, but young, youthful. And the nuance, I think, is captured in um, the word help studies definition of 3501. It says new on the scene recently revealed or what was not there before. So it has this chronological nuance to it, including what is recently discovered. Um, notice uh, in the word helps, they also uh, bring to our attention, naos, new on the scene, suggests something new in time in contrast to its near synonym, 2537, kainos, new in quality. There is some overlap between the two words. However, since we're talking about these two Greek words, then one is capturing the nuance of chronologically new or fresh, and yeah, as in it was never there before, versus um, the uh, other one is capturing the idea of it was there before, but it's been refreshed, it's been renewed, it's been it's been reinvigorated, it's been um, refurbished, if you want to use that terminology. So now, using these two words, it's interesting that we can go back to the Jeremiah passage and see that the word that the um, the Greek word that the Septuagint writers opted for to represent the Greek the Hebrew word chadasha is the choice kaine kaine the diatheke kaine diathekein kaine I'm sorry the kaine which is rooted in the word kainas is the qualitatively new covenant not the chronologically new covenant so let me just break it down like this god says to israel behold the days are coming that i'll make a new covenant is he talking about something brand new chronologically that was never existed is he going to be writing this new body of literature that israel's never seen before are they going to have to be carrying around this new bible and discard the old one does this new chronological covenant displace the old chronological covenant the answer must be no to all of those questions, because he doesn't say I'm going to make a diathekein neos or something like that, neon. He says I'm going to make a diathekein kainein. It's going to be qualitatively different. And so I think it's allowable that we can now begin to entertain some discussions about that this is a covenant that God is making with Israel that does bring in the existing standing mosaic legislation with its 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 moral codes its practices its commandments its standards of righteousness that's established but God's now going to build on top of that and he's going to empower it by his spirit he's going to empower the individual to walk it out and in doing so, the individual now becomes part of 
a um, a family group, the, the family of Abraham, in a renewed fashion. He becomes a child of Abraham uh, in a heavenly fashion. Um, he's born again, to use church lingo. And that's really the experience that God is describing, the prophet is describing in Jeremiah 31, 31 with this new covenant. And I think that will probably do it for the liturgy for tonight. I was going to uh, show you how that... Um, uh, there's a, a different Greek word. Um, there is a Hebrew counterpart for the word neos. It's the maybe I'll just tell you, show you real quick. In um, uh, the book of um, Numbers, I think it is Numbers, right? Uh, we have an uh, a verse that talks about Joshua being a young man, and in the Hebrew, it's the word um, naar, a young man, a naar, right? Ben nun naar, Yehoshua ben. Nun Na'ar, the, uh, let me highlight the Hebrew for you can see which I'm talking about. There we go. Uh, this Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, a Na'ar, a young man. And the Greek counterpart, if I scroll down there into the passage, this Greek counterpart for uh, Na'ar is the Greek word Na'as. And we can see there, if we were to pull up that Strong's number, um, Na'ar in the Hebrew means a boy, a lad, a youth, a retainer, uh, a young person. And in the um, the Greek, it's the uh, the word um, Na'as, which we already looked at. And so that'll do it for the um, liturgy for tonight. Let's turn to the video and begin to wind our study down. We'll watch this video on um on this particular topic, and when the video is finished, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. You ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers by Torah teacher Ariel and eBible. Yep, we did it. Okay. Let's see what we've got on our plate as far as questions tonight. I think it's going to be a long one. Question. The phrase unclean to you is repeated throughout Leviticus 11. What does that say about the inherent cleanliness or uncleanliness of some of the creatures? Wow, that's a long question. Let's see what we can do to unpack it. This answer may come across as highly technical, so please bear with my scientific approach as I attempt to explain the inherent cleanliness and uncleanliness of some of the creatures in Leviticus using my knowledge of Hebrew and the Torah, the law. In Leviticus 11, the entire chapter is given over to explaining what types of animals are acceptable for consumption and which ones were forbidden for consumption. In this chapter, the language used, as is typical of most of the subjects dealt with in Leviticus, is clean and unclean, quote-unquote. Those are the words we're going to find. To make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. And we see in the Hebrew there that I've highlighted two phrases from Leviticus 11.47. The hatame is the unclean, and the hatahor is the clean. Uh, that's what the verse is trying to explain to us. I'm not, I won't read the whole Hebrew for you. But the point I'm trying to highlight for our study is that there are two technical phrases that show up in the Levitical texts uh, over and over again. And they're the way that God has uh, decided to interact with Israel as far as this is clean, this is not clean, and it uses the two Hebrew words uh, more often than not. 
let's keep going. In this chapter, the language used, as is typical of most of the subjects dealt with in Leviticus, is clean and unclean. And these concepts don't really translate into the English vernacular too well without compromising some of the rich meaning conveyed in the original Hebrew. For instance, in Leviticus 11, 4 through 8, speaking of some earth-dwelling animals, we read, But you are not to eat those that only chew the cud or only have a separate hoof. For example, the camel, and we read this in our liturgy, and the hare, they're unclean to you because they chew the cud but don't have a separate hoof. While the pig is unclean for you because, although it has a separate and completely divided hoof, it doesn't chew the cud. Don't eat meat from these or touch their carcasses. They are unclean for you. In every single instance, the original Hebrew word translated as unclean above is tameh. As already expressed, this word is rather difficult to render precisely into receptor language. The concept implied here can mean a wide variety of ideas, from ritually unclean to physically to spiritually or to ethically unclean. They all use the same word, tameh. Related to tameh is the synonym shekets, which is a word normally associated with birds, water dwellers, and swarming creatures like fish and insects. It is usually rendered disgusting or detestable or abominable, and the lexicons call it a detestable thing or an idol, an unclean thing or an abomination, a detestation, or something like that. So which meaning is in view here? Ritually unclean, detestable, physically unclean, uh, in keeping with the rules of biblical interpretation, we'll make a safe assumption that the physical is likely and firstly in question, since the text explains that merely coming in contact renders a person unclean if they contact the carcass there. So there is a physical aspect going on. I suggest that declarative and ritual uncleanness is additionally and clearly being taught in Leviticus. Also, to describe an object and label it in terms of tamay or shakets, it's compared the object to the holy sanctum or the community at large, right? It's clean or unclean in relation to the holy sanctum. It's clean or unclean in relation to your fellow Israelite. So don't think of these terms as thought of in a vacuum. Tamei, Shekets, they're not just isolated terms. The immediate context suggests that these instructions were given to Moses and his priestly brother Aaron and to be expressly conveyed to the people of Israel as they interacted with the holy God at the designated meeting places that God commanded, i.e. the temple and tabernacle. This is our immediate context and therefore it serves to establish the basis of our definition of applicability. Right? These laws and rulings are meant for the people for whom they are addressed as they would find themselves wishing to approach God. So they've got to make sense to them first. What are our conclusions? Here in the pages of our text, we find in no uncertain terms the definition of what is food and what is not food. That is, what you can eat and what you shouldn't. Using the hermeneutic principle of context, we find that these concepts of Tameh and Tahor, as outlined in Leviticus 11, fall right in the middle of a series of chapters dealing with the subjects such as... What's the context? Let's take a look. We've got the consecration of Aaron and high priests in chapter 8. Uh, sin offers and sacrifices, chapter 9. And then chapter 10, we've got uh, the, uh, establishing the difference between holy and unholy. And then when we jump to chapter 12, we got the concerning clean and unclean flesh, like leprosy. So that's the context. And it's within that context that God explains what's kosher and what's not kosher, what is food and what is not as food, what not what's not food. Make sense? All right. Catch my podcast on iTunes. Search from Ariel Hanavi. Also, while you're at it, why don't you head on over to YouTube and take a look at the videos that I produce. And subscribe to my channel and hit the little bell that makes sure you're receiving notifications because I update the content on a weekly or daily basis. Okay? Alrighty.
And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name, and I am blessed to be a part of a community, um, even if it's a internet community where we can discuss your words, where we can um, have meaningful uh, Bible study with one another, even if it's through the medium of the internet. Thank you, Lord, for the YouTube audience. Thank you for the participants, those who interact with me on a week-by-week basis, those who are being challenged by the words that we're studying and who are adding insights to the text that I myself wouldn't have known unless I dialogue with them. So bless them where they're at. Continue to raise them up and to heal them and to protect them and to keep them safe and Lord, we will be careful to give you the praise and the glory. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Oh,